Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is James Curtis, and he published a book about somebody who I just found out recently passed away in late 2021, I think it was October. His name is Mort Saul, who's a, a comedian who I remember seeing and I've watched some of his bits on YouTube, which are around there. But the book he wrote is titled Last Man Standing, Mort Saul and the Birth of Comedy. And James Curtis has also written other books. His other titles are William Cameron Menzies, The Shape of Films to Come, Spencer Tracy, A Biography, W.C. Fields, A Biography, James Whale, A New World of Gods and Monsters, Between Flops, A Biography of Preston Sturges, and then he's edited a couple books. One is the creative producer and also featured player. But again, this is, Fort uh, had a very long career and was around and knew a lot of people, really, I think the, the title of the book is very apt. The Birth of Modern Comedy is something that Mortsall was at uh, right after World War II. So, James Curtis, welcome to the show, and thanks for agreeing to the interview. Thank you, William. Happy so, for people – great, awesome. For people who have not heard of your name or maybe your books, can you talk <laughs> about your background and your other kind of books and what you've written and what led you to writing about Mortsall? Well – the subjects I've dealt with, for the most part, are people whom I became familiar with initially when I was a kid, and uh, I revisited their work as uh, an adult in later years and uh, became more curious about them if there weren't good books about them, and so that's basically what happened. I was exposed to older work back when I was consuming television at a frightening rate, which would be back around uh, late 50s, early 60s especially, and uh, Mort was just one of those figures. He had a, a talk show on local television here in Los Angeles. And so uh, I think that's where I first discovered him. And then um, later I was able to see him uh, live in uh, jazz clubs out here, uh, pr principally jazz clubs. That usually was his venue before we had comedy clubs. And um, I was always quite fascinated by him. And so I wondered why there wasn't a biography of him, and uh, that's why I decided to tackle this subject. And um, I thought it would be interesting because he's the only subject I've ever uh, attempted uh, who was still alive at the time. Uh, right, and this... you reached out to him too for the book, right? Yeah, I did. I did, and um, through his manager, and I said, would Mort be in any way interested in uh, uh, cooperating with a book on the subject? And uh, so it was kind of a touch-and-go thing for a while. Mort was by nature kind of a suspicious character, and uh, uh, he wasn't sure whether he could trust me or not. So uh, we had some interesting times, but ultimately he uh, decided I was okay. We actually bonded over jazz. Uh, he's a well-known jazz uh, aficionado and very knowledgeable, and uh, I was able to expose him to some things that he hadn't seen or heard before, and he wasn't used to that. So uh, that kind of earned me some credibility points with him, and um, it uh, paved the way for uh, really a, a great relationship, uh, and uh, it continued on until his recent death. And he, I mean, he, you add a lot of his personal statements into this book, in the yeah. entirety of his book. So what were those years that you reached out to him and knew him? Well, uh, I think I approached him initially in 2011. Uh, 11 or 12 and uh, and so we we met up in Mill Valley at a restaurant for lunch 
and just to give them a look at me and talk a bit in general terms if we could get along. <laughs> and uh, my wife remembers when we started recording because uh, we ultimately recorded about 40 hours of conversations. And uh, my wife remembers me calling the first night from San Francisco and saying, I don't know if I can do this. And <laughs> And um, it did it did take a while. But uh, the thing about Mort is there wasn't much on paper other than news clippings about him. Um, he wasn't a guy that kept carbons of letters or wrote a lot of letters uh, or uh, kept diaries, things like that. It was all in his head. And uh, so the way to get at it was just simply to sit and talk with him. And uh, that's what I did. Uh, and those 40 hours will be kind of interesting one day, maybe a hundred years from now, when someone comes along and decides to listen to them. Uh, but the best of them informed the text in the book. And then, of course, I went out and talked to a lot of people who knew him and worked with him and uh, uh, and also did a lot of digging. And uh, the result was uh, the book. Right. And I mean, you include so much. He was really in the midst of things. He seemed to have a lot of very well-known people in Los Angeles. I mean, I think that's one aspect of his character is that he started in San Francisco, but he considered himself a son of Los Angeles. Is, would you agree with that? Yeah, he was born in Canada, but uh, he really grew up in Los Angeles and uh, his family moved out here, I'd say, oh, he was about six years old. And uh, so he had a lot of uh, experience seeing movies downtown Los Angeles, things like that. And so Los Angeles is really the place that he uh, called home. And uh, when he started in San Francisco is because he had followed the woman who would be his eventually first wife uh, up to Berkeley, where she was going to go to school. He went to USC himself. and. Uh, so he led a kind of hound-to-mouth existence, uh, slept on people's floors and sofas and things, and uh, uh, really had a really good chance of being uh, homeless <laughs> right. uh, when, uh, when uh, he was kind of pointed in the direction of a hungry eye. And uh, he kind of figured out uh, why actually standing in front of audiences where his strengths were. and. He had a natural gift for uh, talking to people and fascinating them, let's put it that way as well. And uh, so uh, starting at The Hungry Eye, he broke through with audiences eventually and um, became a sensation. And, Can uh, you talk about kind of North Beach at that time? The, you know, so 1953, I think, is when he did his first yeah, show. That's correct. And uh, North Beach was a very bohemian place. Uh, there were all manner of restaurants, bookstores, City Lights bookstore, the famous City Lights was in yeah, North Beach. Getting, yeah, yeah uh, and um, the Purple Onion uh, clubs, both straight, gay, jazz, whatever. Uh, even opera was uh, uh, the entertainment choice at one place. Uh, and um, so it was, it was a really heady brew of... Uh, various uh, ethnicities, uh, interests, political uh, persuasions, etc. And uh, so it was, in a way, the perfect place for someone like him to come along because he was breaking all the rules and essentially, uh, uh, well, as, as I like to say, he changed the culture and he created an entire 
new way of uh, expressing oneself comedically and uh, kind of opened the door. Let's say he kicked open the door for people like Mike Nichols and Elaine May and Lenny Bruce and uh, the people who came after them. And can you describe what set him apart? I mean, he seemed to be self-aware that he was different than everybody else. What set him apart from other comedians? Well, he didn't work with prepared material. Uh, there were things that he would develop over time, but he worked more with themes and with things written out. Uh, so he had a way, he had a great memory for one thing, which lasted practically up to the day that he died. Uh, and um, he would read voraciously. He would read multiple newspapers every day. He would read the news magazines, Newsweek, Time, etc. Uh, he would consume everything he could get his hands on, and uh, he retained it all. And he had a way of taking the spin that was on, especially political uh, uh, subjects at that time, and seeing the absurdity in it, and doing it in a dry but at the same time uh, um, whimsical way. And uh, it was unlike anything anybody else did. Uh, and it was the smart audiences that he found in a place like the Hungry Eye who could appreciate what he had to say. Uh, he wasn't a baggy pants uh, burlesque comedian or telling jokes about how fat his wife was, that sort of thing. Uh, he was out to talk about people like uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy, Richard Nixon, President Eisenhower, etc. And uh, and so he would say things like during the, the re-election campaign, um, vote for Eisenhower, let's keep the uh, White House empty another four years, that sort of thing. Right. And uh, nobody had heard it put that way before. And he was, so he was kind of uh, against the great people thought of him. He was, it was strange because there's a uh, kind of oppositional element of his character. He was very patriotic American, but then mm -hmm. he would skewer the politicians, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that was something the people didn't really do at that time. Uh, the two forebears that you could look at and say, okay, well, they were, uh, they, they kind of set the stage for Mort Saul or Will Rogers and then Bob Hope. Uh, but Bob Hope tended when he said things political, which weren't that often, uh, they came off as friendly. Um, Mort didn't come off as friendly. Mort came off as outraged. And I think that was the big difference. In some ways, he found his way to uh, the emotions of the audience and to tell them what they should be paying attention to and why he found it outrageous. And uh, that was new. That was completely new. Right. So he has this jazz kind of environment. He's in a bohemian part of Los Angeles, but he has a preppy. I mean, you showed on the cover of your book. This is his stage outfit is a collared shirt, V-neck sweater and paper, right? Right. His character, he thought thought about it and he said because he was essentially in a college town and uh, and uh, he said, who would ruminate on subjects like this? And he thought a grad student. So a grad student would be wearing a pullover sweater, white socks, uh, uh, open collar and uh, old comedians at that time, if they weren't wearing uh, tuxes, they, they were uh, at least wearing coats and ties and uh, behaving in a certain semi-formal way. And Mort uh, was the guy that came along and did away with all that. So for the first time, you had someone out there who was uh, casual, not only in terms of his appearance, but in his thoughts and his opinions. 
And he he was inter he was friends, very close friends with an interesting character that San Francisco's of that era knew, who was Herb Kane, right? Herb and how Kane, can you talk about their friendship? Well, Herb Kane, of course, would crawl around town every night to gather material that he could fill his nightly column with, or his daily column, I should say. And so he had heard about Mort, but he actually hadn't taken him in uh, at the Hungry Eye until one night. Uh, this is when Mort had been playing the Hungry Night, uh, the Hungry Eye, several months, I think, before Herb Kane actually saw him in person. And uh, it's probably a good thing that Herb Kane waited that long because Mort's initial uh, weeks at the Hungry Eye were not terribly successful. Uh, and it was to Wrinkle Banducci's credit that he left Mort on the stage because he could have said, "Hey, you're not getting, you're not getting along with the audience here. Uh, to take a hike." And he didn't do that. Uh, the thing about the Hungry Eye was up to until the point at which Mort uh, uh, came to them, um, it was strictly a music venue. You had folk singers, you had uh, uh, musicians, instrumentalists, uh, but nobody who approached being a comedian. And uh, so Mort was different for them, and uh, it took a while for the audiences to catch on. But when they did catch on, they caught on a big way, and that, of course, fueled Mort's creativity. And so when um, Herb Kane saw him for the first time, Mort had settled into a pattern, and he was doing very well at it. And that created a level of enthusiasm that uh, uh, resulted in multiple, multiple mentions in the Herb Kane column and encouraging everybody to go to the Hungry Eye and see him. And it got so that he was drawing crowds to such an extent that uh, they had to move the Hungry Eye out of its uh, original location into a larger location across the street just so he could, they could handle the uh, audience demands. And uh, that's when Mort became a real, real celebrity. That's it. So Herb King kind of propelled him into the public. And that was actually, people who don't know, but this is before internet or anything, that column in San Francisco Chronicle was what people read the Chronicle for, is try to see what was going on. And it talked about famous people and things like that. So, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was the best read column in San Francisco. And uh, so... Uh, being in Herb Kane's column for the, I mean, it was a regional column. It wasn't syndicated, but uh, but if you were in Herb Kane's column, uh, your target audience would know about you because everybody read Herb Kane. Right. So he starts becoming famous. And can you talk about, I mean, it's important to think about the time and place of the 50s that this is, he was trying to come up before, like you said, before comedy clubs. So how did he kind of, go from just working in San Francisco to becoming more popular around the country? Well, this is this is where he really, truly changed the culture because he he had to find places where he could work and they they weren't there. There were no comedy clubs back then. And if you went to nightclubs, uh, it was singers and uh, uh, musicians of various sorts. And if you had a comedian, they were always the opening act. And it was always somebody like, oh, say, Henny Youngman, who uh, had a, a seemingly endless uh, stream of one-liners. Uh, but again, non-political, not thoughtful in that respect. Uh, and so Mort kind of stumbled on the idea of jazz clubs because there were jazz clubs in all the major markets. And that was the kind of audience he knew from experience that he wanted to talk to. And so uh, Mort built an informal 
network of such clubs around the country. And, and you had people, you had places like uh, Mr. Kelly's in Chicago and Storyville in uh, Boston and uh, Basin Street East in New York City, et cetera. So uh, in each of those, or the Crescendo out in uh, Los Angeles and uh, the Interlude, which was above the Crescendo. And in each case, invariably in each case, Mort was the first spoken word act, as they said in those days, spoken word act to appear at any of those venues. Uh, he was the first non-musician to appear at those venues. And he was so startlingly new and different that uh, uh, he demanded people's attention. And as a result of that, he got all the press that he could possibly want, and it was rapturous. And so once Mort had set up this trail, if you will, this comedic trail for the new comedy, then people like Shelley Berman and uh, Nichols and May and um, and Henny Youngman, uh, not Henny Youngman, but uh, uh, Lenny Bruce, maybe? Lenny Bruce. I was, I was getting Henny Youngman and Lenny <laughs> Bruce conf confused, which people don't necessarily make that mistake. Uh, and uh, and and the others that came along after them, and uh, and uh, there was a place for them to perform then, and it just kind of magnified, and it grew, and it grew as a result. So, you had this whole group uh, of uh, comedians, uh, satirist, I guess, is a better word to use for them, and uh, uh, they became um, they became in a sense, tarred to a certain degree by Lenny Bruce when he became um, more popular and more familiar to people, uh, that uh, you it became not only the new smart comedy, but in some ways uh, dangerous comedy. And uh, Time Magazine especially took off after these people because the presumption was they all had dirty minds and they all had subversive thoughts and uh, they were... Uh, 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 kind of um, of uh, sugarcoating the messages that they had and that every one of them was a communist of one sort or another. So uh, they were interesting times. And yeah, uh, right. Mort, Mort kind of rode, the, uh, rode that wave more than anybody. And that was the era, you know, that was the era. I mean, he told jokes about Curtis LeMay, some yep. of these other far-right characters. Uh, he said, Richard, you said Richard Milhouse Nixon was his most reliable punching bag. So <laughs> yes, he was going <laughs> going after these guys i mean and he had he was connected to and knew a lot of people that i mean he, you said he opened for billy holiday what are some yeah. of these other people like hugh hefner or something that he associated with he associated with a lot of uh, famous people well you know hefner was in his own way uh engaged in his own uh, social revolution with playboy magazine and mort and he came on at both about the same time both i think in 53 and um as a result of that, they became fast friends. Uh, but Hefner was send, selling the idea of a lifestyle, you know, with the uh, uh, the apartment and the stereo and uh, uh, a, a sense of uh, quality to the uh, liquor they were drinking, that sort of thing. And Playboy was all about that. Now, of course, Playboy was garnished with writers like Norman Mailer and uh, uh, a certain intellectual pretension while most people were there to take a look at the centerfolds and uh, Mort understood that but but Mort gave Hefner like some of the writers that Hefner published a certain validation and so for that from that perspective he was extremely important to Playboy in the same sense that uh, 
uh, Hefner was important to him, Playboy, in terms of speaking to the kind of audience that uh, Mort wanted to speak to. And uh, so jazz became an issue with Mort uh, with Playboy. Playboy didn't start out as kind of a, 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 a home for uh, writing on jazz, intelligent writing on jazz, but uh, it uh, became one. And uh, Mort uh, uh, was one of the people who uh, put a front on uh, the Playboy Jazz Festival the first time they did it in Chicago, uh, and ultimately at other jazz festivals as well. But he was different from everybody else in that he did not play an instrument, he did not sing. But his delivery had a certain rhythm to it that uh, uh, geared with an improvisational mindset uh, was musical. And that, I think, is why he got across to people who uh, regularly came to jazz clubs uh, around the country and uh, why he was an acceptable act to them. Right. And he so he had that monologue, but he was one of the first kind of comedians to get into the new media of uh, records. Right. Can you talk about that? Yeah, he, 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 it is said, and I think it's true, that he recorded the first modern comedy album. Uh, comedy albums being rare at the time, and uh, if you walked into a record store in 1954, you wouldn't necessarily see a bin that was labeled comedy. It would be a spoken word bin where you'd have uh, poets reading their stuff and uh, uh, great speeches of history and things like that. So uh, uh, the first... There were comedy albums before this, but invariably they were albums that uh, were recorded in a recording studio. In other words, there was no audience. And so you did not have the feedback of an audience that was going to laugh at something that you've said or done. Um, Mort's first album was called uh, Mort Saul at Sunset, and it was recorded uh, in Monterey in 1955, and he was not aware that it was being recorded that night. Uh, uh, he Actually, the recording equipment and the crew was there to record Dave Brubeck, and Mort was uh, on the bill that night with Dave Brubeck and Paul Desmond, and they happened to run the tape on Mort as well as uh, Brubeck, and uh, they, uh, this was a uh, uh, Fantasy Records, and uh, they uh, proceeded to issue an album without Mort's knowledge or his consent. So that was Mort's Solid Sunset. And uh, uh, Mort objected to this because he rightly determined that by the time they got it out, the material was stale, and uh, went to court and forced him to withdraw it. Uh, but it was still the first mainstream comedy album that had an, a genuine audience attached to it. And... Uh, so for the first time, you got to hear Mort in a in a typical setting in an auditorium uh, with a live appreciative audience that was also there to hear Dave Brubeck, who was also a, a, a tremendously popular and getting more so uh, jazz act. And uh, uh, so others came along after that. The first one that Mort did uh, uh, when he signed um, uh, with uh, Norman Grant's um, was um, was to uh, tell Shelley Berman, whom he'd held come up come up in the uh, club scene, uh, to uh, to consider doing an album of his own. And uh, so Shelley's first album uh, uh, was a big, big hit. Mort was always kind of a, a, a cult figure. Uh, Shelley Berman was very accessible on a wide 
range of uh, to a wide range of listeners, and so his album, uh, uh, which was called uh, Inside Shelley Berman, uh, sold tremendously. I mean, it's just unheard of that a comedy album would sell like that. And uh, so he did others, and he was the one that really kind of put the comedy album on the uh, commercial shelf. But uh, it was Mort that pioneered it. Yeah, fascinating. And so he kind of was making, starting to make legitimate money too, right around the mid fifties. Yeah, 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 he was, he was, he was doing well, uh, and television came calling. And so, uh, he was put under contract to CBS, but they could never seem to figure out what to do with him. Yeah. And I mean, I think he just didn't, it wasn't an easy fit. There, there's a theme in the book about him being too intellectual or, you know, not kind of being kind of, uh, not as, like you said, not as generally popular as, as everybody, yeah. but he was also in films too, right? Yeah, he was. Uh, he was not a great actor, we must admit. The best thing that he did from an acting standpoint was his first film, which was called In Love and War. And um, he played a, a Marine during World War II in it. He was with a, a, a group of them, R.J. Wagner being one of them, Jeffrey Hunter being another, etc. And um, um, Mort was allowed by the uh, writer and director Philip Dunn to write his own part. And so Mort wrote all his own dialogue, and it worked. Uh, later on, when he had to speak other people's dialogue, it didn't work so well because uh, he was used to improvising. Uh, if you told Mort, here's the gist of your dialogue, and say it in your own words, he was fine with that. Uh, if he had to learn a script, he wasn't fine. And kind of one of his big early moments was at the 1959 Oscars. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was produced by Jerry Wald, a producer who took a great uh, shine to Mort. And Jerry Wald was a big Hollywood producer at the time, and he was asked to produce uh, two Academy Award ceremonies in a row. And for the second one, uh, he set up a, 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 a format where you had six hosts, uh, Bob Hope being one of them. I think Lawrence Olivier was one of them. Um, I forget. I forget offhand. It's been a long time since I've seen it. But Mort came out halfway through the program and he did about a, a six minute monologue um, that was kidding uh, the film industry in general and the people who came out from the East Coast to make their way into the movies. And uh, he talked about a lot of things that must have left uh, the audience in middle America scratching their heads because he was doing a lot of inside jokes about the Hollywood ranch market and things like that. And the uh, stage uh, actors would come out for a movie and would go in and buy one Coke rather than a six pack because they didn't know how long they were staying there. And uh, the audience got it and in the studio or in the auditorium that night, but uh, uh, some people at home didn't necessarily, but it was a big, big uh, uh, bit of exposure for him uh, to a national audience. And this was back at a time when the Academy Awards were essentially being covered on television like a news event. They weren't necessarily staging the Academy Awards for NBC, but uh, NBC covered it. And uh, so Mort got some exposure, some real mainstream exposure that he really hadn't had before. Right, I think you said it was 40 to 70 million people yeah, Dorothy Kilgall and declared him the blockbuster of the evening. So, I mean, that was kind of put him right. Right. I would. Would you agree that right around there, late fifties, early sixties was kind of the apex of his career? Maybe. Yeah, it was nineteen sixty that he was on the cover of Time magazine. So, yeah, I think that's a safe statement. 
And can you talk about his, his relationship to, to JFK? Well, uh, he was recruited not by JFK, but by JFK's father, Joe Kennedy, who was in a way unofficially managing his son's campaign for president. And uh, he uh, got Mort on the phone one time. I think Mort was actually, uh, no, Mort was not, um, Mort was not on location making a film at that point, but before that, and Joe Kennedy got him on the phone. He says, I hear you're funny, and I hear that you can stick the knife in between the second and third rib, and the guy doesn't even know it. And so he he asked Mort to uh, write uh, uh, zingers, if you will, for uh, Jack Kennedy and uh, to uh, suggest lines and the like that could be inserted into Kennedy's speeches. And uh, so he did that. He thought it was an interesting, uh, interesting challenge. And uh, he said he never got paid for it, uh, considering how wealthy the Kennedys were. That's kind of a crime. But uh, uh, he still didn't regret it. But at the same time, he felt that maybe that was a good thing because uh, he could take off after Kennedy um, and not feel any kind of uh, uh, loyalty to him because uh, he was not on the payroll. And uh, so he would write jokes for Kennedy at the same time. Uh, he would uh, skewer Kennedy whenever it seemed appropriate. Right, and he, uh, I think he was at dinner in in Beverly Hills that Mort saw hosted that included JFK, right? It was like a Democratic fundraiser. Do you recollect that? Well, there were times, Mort, Mort really considered his home base after the period with the hungry eye to be the crescendo in Los Angeles. It was on the Sunset Strip. And uh, the crescendo, unlike some of the other clubs in the Sunset Strip, strip um, uh, specialized in jazz acts. Uh, if you went to one of the other clubs, you might see Judy Garland or Peggy Lee. Uh, at the crescendo, you'd see Duke Ellington or Ella Fitzgerald. And uh, Mort was the big noise at the crescendo at that time. And during the Democratic Convention in 1960, which was held at the sports arena uh, uh, in uh, just south of downtown Los Angeles, um, people came and hung out at the crescendo because Mort was doing his act. And these were all political figures who wanted to see what Mort was like in a, in a club setting. And uh, one night he remembered Jack Kennedy coming in and sitting in the back of the room with a couple of his... Uh, his associates, and he's, he was just going to see what the program was like. I'm not even sure the audience realized he was there. And Mort, Mort made a kind of insolent remark about Kennedy and uh, Marilyn Monroe. And he said in the back, from the stage, he could hear Kennedy's fists go down in the, on the table in the back of the room and say, God damn it, he does it again. And uh, so Kennedy, Kennedy was fond of Mort and at the same time he was wary of Mort. It seems like that kind of is the same thing because Mort ran into Nixon too, right? Just after the he lost the uh, governor's was, election. Governor's election where he gave the famous line you, to the press, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. And uh, Mort was babysitting Paul Newman one night who, who was a really famous heavy drinker. And Mort, uh, surprisingly enough, he, he was not a drinker. He did not drink and he did not smoke nor did he uh, use blue language at all, especially on stage. And um, so he was very close to Paul Newman, and Newman and Joanne Woodward was 
confident that if Moon was out with Mort that he wouldn't get in any trouble because Mort was there. He was sober and he was uh, uh, keeping an eye on things. Well, they were at what was a La Scala, I think, which was Mort's regular hangout and uh, Santa Monica Boulevard. And um, they were sitting at the bar. Mort was probably nursing a Coca-Cola. And uh, Newman spied Nixon and his wife, Pat, uh, in at a table in the back of the room. And uh, Mort hadn't noticed him. And uh, so uh, Newman pointed to him. He said, why don't you buy him a drink? You, you owe your livelihood to that guy. And so uh, Mort sent a, a note over to the Nixon's table and said, uh, may I buy you a bottle of wine? May I send you a bottle of wine, I think is the way he put it. And Nixon sent back the message, only if you'll join us. And uh, so he and Paul Newman went over and joined the Nixons at their table. And uh, Mort later said that uh, uh, he knew it was Nixon because immediately he tried to make a deal. And, uh, and later on, it became part of Mort's act. Uh, Mort would describe the whole thing about Nixon looking at the the... the wine list at the restaurant, seeing all the prices and the imports and everything, and being uh, somewhat cheap, at least in Mort's telling, um, Nixon finally said, by God, we're going to have good American wine. And he said, the, I remember him talking about the waiter listening to that and thinking, oh, he's thinking about Gallo, you know, uh, 95 cents a, a bottle, that sort of thing. And uh, uh, at one point, if you, wait, if you wait a minute, I'll make some for you, you know, jumping up and down. And uh, so... Uh, Nixon's message to him was keep the heat on Kennedy as well as me, and uh, and that, and that, and he certainly had no problem doing that. Right, and he said that Mortsall was the Will Rogers of his time, so mm -hmm. he keep getting labeled with this Will Rogers. Well, kind of well, social well. Commentary. Time Time Magazine that cover story referred to him as Will Rogers with fangs. Wow, yeah. So that's it, and and uh, I mean you divide the book into two parts. Um, because I think that that is important because that changed kind of his kind of outlook in life. Can you talk about what happened and why you you have a part one and part two from what song? Well, uh, part two, part one ends on the morning of November 22nd, 1963. And part two begins with the aftermath of the assassination. And it really made a profound difference in his life because not at first, but not long afterwards. Um, usually, actually, with the issuance of the Warren Report, uh, Mort started to uh, satirize the Warren Report and the reasoning behind the Warren Report on stage. And it took hold of him in such a way that uh, he eventually ended up working for uh, the New Orleans District Attorney, Jim Garrison, who was trying to establish a conspiracy to assassinate the president uh, uh, grew out of uh, some uh, local uh, uh, prominent citizens, let's put it that way, like Clay Shaw um, in New Orleans. And, and uh, Mort uh, felt so strongly that uh, Garrison was on to something that he volunteered his time and worked for Morris, Garrison for a while as an unpaid volunteer investigator. He I was think he was a badge. Yeah, he got a badge or something, or became a yeah. sheriff or some kind of title. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he was an investigator, and uh, that 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 really kind of colored his act and his whole attitude toward things for a period of about ten years. Uh, 
But the thing that surprised me getting to know Mort was how much of his worldview, and especially his view of his ideal of uh, America, let's put it that way, uh, came from the movies that he consumed as a child. And uh, he would see things like Frank Capra films in the mid and late 30s when he was a kid. And uh, he would he would see that as the ideal for the country. And uh, when something that was as inconceivable as the president being shot down in the middle of a, of a street in Houston, or Dallas, pardon me, um, it didn't it didn't compute with him. It, there had to be something behind it because if this were a Hollywood film, let's say, especially one of the golden period, like the 30s and 40s and like, there, everything has a reason, everything has an answer in the end. And when something that is reasonless and defies answers happens, uh, there's got to be an explanation for it and that's what he felt and I think that's the reason he felt that and uh, at the end of the day uh, it was his undoing in a way because there was no rationale to what happened it was crazy uh, it was shocking uh, it changed the course of history uh, but it was not a conspiracy in the sense that Garrison and he imagined it as being but uh, he was going to prosecute it and continue to prosecute it no matter what. Right, and it kind of, he kind of got blacklisted for those opinions too, right? I mean, it really... Yeah, he lost his show in Los Angeles over it, and Mort was of the personality that uh, if you told him not to do something or told him that he was damaging his own credibility by doing something, he would double down. And uh, that's what he did, as a matter of fact. And uh, so... He went through a period where he was making appearances in nightclubs, and he would roll out the entire a, a table with all the with the entire entirety of the bound volumes of the Warren Report on it, and he would start to litigate the Warren Report. And uh, he had he, he had some good, funny comments about the Warren Report, but at the end of the day, there was so much anger mixed in with what he had to say that he was off putting to a lot of audiences. Interesting. Well, we're at 38 minutes. I mean, it's really interesting. There's a lot more to the book. There's a lot more to his life. I mean, what would you like to leave with the listener before we wrap it up? Well, just that, as I said earlier, he changed the culture. And if you wonder where people like John Stewart and Stephen Colbert come from, um, look at Mort Saul and how he established the um, the landscape for which these guys could uh, a later work, you know, they're later generation people, of course, but um, the entire notion of smart comedy as opposed to uh, take my wife, please, uh, began with Mort Saul. And uh, so if you want to see how an entire cycle, an entire American cultural tradition uh, got started, uh, this is where you start. It's with the story of Mort Saul. Mort Saul and Last Man Standing. And where's the best place to get the book? Probably these days on Amazon or on uh, Barnes & Noble. It was published in 2017 or at your local library, I guess. <laughs> right. And you have a website, don't you? Uh, yeah, James jamescurtis.net. James and James. Uh, and uh, allow me to plug my new book, which is coming out on February 15th, and it's called Buster Keaton, A Filmmaker's Life. Buster Keaton, A Filmmaker's Life is coming out. And you have all those other ones. One, two, three, four five other books too so that'll be a total of seven books 
And that's about Buster Keaton. He was the silent film star, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, the great stone face. And uh, he was also one of our most brilliant directors of uh, physical comedy. And so this is his story. Gotcha, okay. Buster Keaton, cool. And uh, again, the website is jamescurtis.net. Title of the book we talked about is Last Man Standing, Mort Saul and the Birth of Comedy. And Mort Saul just recently passed away. But James Curtis, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. All right, stay there. Stay there.